Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jarrah, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, I have crew members Andy. Hello. And Sue. Hi there, everybody. And we are going to be doing a book club episode today. But before we get into the main topic, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media up to silly watch along commentaries. Visit www.patreon.com slash women at warp. And, you know, as the world is in challenging times right now, um, we've been doing some extra bonus patron exclusive watch alongs and opening those up to all our patrons. So if you are an existing patron, uh, make sure you're checking your patron feed and to learn about those. And we've had a couple and we promise only ridiculous episodes. So the next one we're going to do is masks from TNG. So check it out. And if you don't can't join us, you can still listen to the audio from all of these uh, hangout watch alongs. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we hope that all of you listeners are doing well. And thanks to everyone who joined us for the discussion of this book, which is the latest in our book club. It's The Last Best Hope, which is the first Picard tie-in novel. It's by Una McCormack. And uh, we've been discussing this for the last month or so in our Goodreads group. And if you aren't already a member of that, you can hop over to goodreads.com and search Women at Warp in the groups field. And uh, you can join in the discussion and learn about future reads and suggest your own books too. All right. Overall thoughts. Uh, I liked this book. It's well written. It's a good book. It was easy to read. I don't like the whole direction that star trek seems to be going lately which is basically like instead of it being idealistic and inspirational it is now very realistic and not inspirational at all so like i liked this book i would even give it five stars it's an excellent book and it's really interesting and it's well written and the characters are well drawn and everything about it is good i just wish it wasn't star trek Which is a harsh thing to say, but that's how I feel because Lord knows the world is shitty. I don't need to know that, like, I'm used to things being shitty. That's not why I watch or read Star Trek. I watch Star Trek because, like, we've skipped past all of that and now things are good and there's still conflict and there's still problems and there are still bad people, but, like, the society itself is better. And the society presented in this book is not better. It's the same one we have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are definitely a lot of parallels to stuff going on today. hundred percent. I think what, what happened when we had, you know, TOS TNG on the air is that they really told us that everyone in the Federation and the Federation itself had these great ideals that were shared And Mm -hmm. the conflicts that we saw were with non-Federation races. Or outliers, like random admirals that went bad. And then like we had to, but they were not, they were outliers. They were individuals. Mm -hmm. They weren't part of the actual functioning society. Right. And what we're seeing now in Star Trek is this internal struggle inside the Federation that the outliers are the ones fighting against. Yeah, I don't like it. So I don't disagree with you. I think that this 
is a part of Star Trek that I appreciate, but it is missing something. And I, I, when I read this book, I also think it was a very good book overall. It certainly, the book definitely isn't hopeful. I think the series gets a little more hopeful towards the end of season one, at least. But I, when I finished this book, it was around the mid-season of the series, and I just felt so like I miss when Star Trek was comforting because I was like, you know, reading the news and then getting the like my fears from what I was reading the news reinforced in the book and the show. Mm-hmm. And it didn't feel like an escape anymore. So I appreciate it for what it's doing. I just wish that it was maybe a little bit more interspersed, maybe and that maybe we could have like, I know we're expecting animated shows and stuff, but maybe it's not always that the lighter stuff is the realm of, like, the less serious stuff. Like, animation and kids, you know, cartoons tend to be taken a little bit less seriously, even if that's not fair. But maybe the lighter stuff could also be in the main universe sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not like TNG was not dramatic and it didn't have conflict mm-hmm. and it didn't tackle big, scary ideas. It's just it was it was tackling it from a different perspective. Like when, or even DS9, like people bring up DS9 in this conversation at all times when they're like, well, what about DS9? DS9 was dark. Yeah. But like a lot of the darkest episodes of DS9 were like looking back, like past tense is a great example of that Mm -hmm. where Bashir's sitting here and is like, what is this? This is terrible. How did they let it get this bad? And he's looking back on it from a perspective of this is not our society anymore. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating. Like, you look at DS9, and, and and the other thing about DS9 is that it's on the frontier. It's not in the heart of Starfleet. It's not in the heart of the Federation. It's on a new frontier, and they're dealing with other non-Federation races and species and stuff. So, like, it's different. It's a different perspective, whereas this is, like, right in the heart of, like, the top decision-making people, and they suck. Yeah. You know what I mean? And... You know, in the the older shows, the the conflicts and the problems that needed to be solved typically originated from outside our main cast. Yes. And they don't anymore. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, for me, I think this is one of the, the best tie-in novels that we've had in a very long time. Yeah, I'd agree. For the Star Trek series. But I, I totally get where you're coming from. And I think that it's it's almost no win in the fact that this is not like a feel-good, uplifting novel because it is a prequel mm-hmm. to finding, you know, our hero in a really bad place in his life. When you first open the book, one of the first things you see is a quote from TNG, which is, it's possible to make no mistakes and still lose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly, because... You start this book and it's Picard at his most idealistic and you know he's just going to fail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's valuable to like look at a character like that that's a hero and and explore his failures. But this was just brutal. And it like completely undermined everything he believes in. And I don't know. It's just like we live in a world where we are constantly failing as a society, in my opinion. Like, we're, we're failing the Uyghur Muslims. We're failing the Rohingya Muslims. We're failing the Syrians. We are doing that right now. I would much rather read a story 
about a humanity that's gotten its shit together and is not failing anymore and is like doing things the way they should be done, which is taking care of people and caring more about people than we care about money. And instead, we have the opposite of that. So it's a really good book. It's really well written. It's good sci-fi. I liked it. I liked reading it. I just wish it wasn't Star Trek. I wish Mm -hmm. it was, you know, just a random sci-fi book. I think that's fair. I did appreciate it, though. And I certainly find that these days that, like, I'm finding myself repeating to myself, like, just one impossible thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that, to me, is my favorite, like, takeaway from this book is... I guess, like, trying to persist through crisis. And I know it doesn't end well in the beginning of the series, but I think I am seeing myself more as, like, Raffi and Jean-Luc in the middle of this book. And so I feel like there's still nothing wrong with that approach, I guess. But I totally, like, I, I definitely see what you're saying. So should we get into some of the themes and questions? What do you think the biggest theme of this book is? One of the themes, I mean, I think probably, okay, so now I'm, I'm like, that's a good question. <laughs> One of the themes, I don't know that I'm going to say this is the biggest theme, but I did appreciate the theme of sort of like self-determination for the Romulans and, you know, Starfleet trying to handle this in a non-colonialist way and... I don't know if that's really a theme, but that was something that I appreciated about the approach to this, that, you know, they could have introduced different dynamics or they could have, you know, been super imaginative. But I think, you know, having Lieutenant Coley there being like the person who is like, I can say from my experience as a Bajoran that these are, this is how it should not be done and that you're going to lose people's support if you don't let them feel like they have ownership over this process and um, I thought that was a, a good kind of check on some of some of the more like problematic elements of the sort of TNG mentality of things where like they come in and just lecture people. I agree totally. And I feel like that was one of the strengths of the book is critiquing the idea that Picard knows what's right. Mm-hmm. And if everybody just does what Picard says, everything will be fine. And the idea that Starfleet would have the right in the name of saving lives of going into another empire or whatever and making decisions for their citizens that they don't have the right to make. Mm -hmm. And that kind of flows into what I thought the biggest theme or the most resonant theme for me was the idea that you can't control what other people are going to do. Yeah, you can't control how other people feel. You can't control how other people see things. And like, there are a lot of examples of you seeing having characters who see the same event completely differently, and neither of them are completely wrong or right, Mm -hmm. which is a really good indicator of the strength of the moral dilemma is if one person's right and the other person's wrong, well, that's easy. If they both have points then it's a lot harder so i liked the romulan liaison they had on the ship Mm -hmm. and how even though i definitely when we talk about we talked about lieutenant coley the bajoran woman and how she tried so hard and then there was a breakdown and there was a massacre and she saw it as picard's fault or rather that picard 
did not take the responsibility he needed to take for those lives. And then on the other hand, you have this Romulan liaison who saw it as a necessary thing that had to happen. And even though I'm more on her side than his side, you can also see his side, even if it sucks. Hmm. That is something that kind of just happened over and over and over again, where you're just like, Another example is the scientist, Dr. Safadi, where she was like, but this is the truth. Why won't people see the truth? And she wants the truth to be like this one, you know, thing that is not open to interpretation. And I agree with her. Like she did have like a mathematical scientific truth, but you still can't force people to believe in it. And you can't force people to make the decisions you would make. And not being able to control everything means that you can make all the right decisions and still fail, Mm -hmm. as Picard would say. And that's what happened. Like, he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't find, like, the perfect words to unlock the Romulan psyche and have them see it his way. And to that point, and to to Jera's earlier, I do like that very early on, Crusher tells Picard, don't surround yourself with yes-men. Right. Find somebody who is not going to be blinded by the, the stories that are built up around you. And that's where we get Rafi, right? That's who that person is for him. But there, I don't think there are enough of them. And I do think she starts to, to buy into like the great man Picard. But I was also watching earlier today, Jesse Gender's review of this book. So I'm going to give Mm -hmm. them credit for this. But they said that one of the biggest themes they saw was the theme of compromise. Mm-hmm. So everyone has to make compromises. The Federation, Picard, Raffi, the Romulans. And for each of them, they compromise in most of these situations probably more than they want to. Mm-hmm. And it's we, we see the consequences of that. Because when you have to compromise over and over again more than you want to, for a lot of people, you start to breed resentment. Yeah. I think that, you know, Cormac does a really good job of laying out, like, how some of the politics changed and and that tension between, like, and, you know, wishing this maybe was not the dynamic in the Federation, but you could see how those, like, border worlds were had some, like, legitimate grievances that were turned in some unhelpful ways mm-hmm. and that like distance between the mission happening on the ground and the political decisions being made and the impact that that had and the, you know, declining support within the Federation because people were having to make those compromises around their, you know, like giving up their research and things like that. And, you know, not, you know, going out to the store for non-essential reasons (laughs) or, you know, things like that. Not It was not at all close to home is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, it brings up this idea of like, because he's he's been on the Enterprise for all this time, mm-hmm. right? Is being on a Starfleet starship, anyone, not just the Enterprise, but that's that's a bubble, right? Yeah. They don't have to deal with what's going on internally with the politics of the member worlds. They don't have to deal mm-hmm. with the the fight for resources. So he gets he comes back and gets sort of not thrown into, but is mm-hmm. is now in this situation that involves all of these internal Federation politics, all of these politics with the Romulans and the resources of getting all of this done. And it's just 
far outside, like one ship and one crew that has been his purview for what 30 years that's why i appreciated the character of clancy so much because there were a lot of scenes that were from her perspective that kind of they were both funny and kind of eye-opening where you see like picard and he is still this high-minded idealist right and she's just like banging her head against the wall because she's Mm -hmm. just like you're not seeing it we're not you're not hearing us we're trying to tell you that the political will to do this is eroding and he's like well just tell them it's the right thing to do and she's like Mm -hmm. but that's not how people work (laughs) (laughs) and so i really appreciated kind of seeing that high-minded idealism that picard is so well known for and is such a part of who he is like he just cannot comprehend that not everyone is going to think the way that he thinks and it makes him have blind spots that get exploited. Yeah, definitely. I thought it really helped underline the dynamics between Picard and Clancy and, you know, maybe excuse the F-bomb dropping if you understood (laughs) this background. That said, I mean, you you shouldn't expect, and I don't think they did expect that, like, you know, everyone watching the show will have already read the book. Um, You shouldn't need to have read the book to understand that, but I just felt like I appreciated the way they played it if you know this background a bit more. How do we feel about Olivia Quest? And she's a politician. Yeah. Jared and I both work in public service <laughs> slash politics. Yep. And I'm sure that both of us have dealt with our fair share of politicians. I've been working on campaigns since I before I could vote. And I've been around a million politicians and I've worked for a million politicians. They are almost all like this. Mm-hmm. There is even the good ones. Even mm-hmm. the good ones have this underlying... How do I make this work for me? And they have the ego and they always in the back of the mind, no matter what they're doing are, how will I get reelected? Mm-hmm. And how, how do I leverage this power for more power? They are all like that. That's the personality mm-hmm. type that is drawn to politics. It just is. Yeah. I feel like these days you can really see who is having trouble resisting that voice or um you know in the current moment and and then some people are being like surprisingly not like that that are kind of like that all the rest of the time but yeah it's it's an interesting dynamic and again like starts out with some decent rationale but she's very much going at this with an agenda and i thought it was interesting i didn't have any problems with her as a character she was probably the most realistic part of that book i mean i have a problem with her character as a person yeah (laughs) the accuracy seems like it's there i mean just the the repeated phrase of what was it romulan space for romulans or romulan space is best for romulans yeah Mm -hmm. even even when like there's fake slurs or fake racism in fiction it feels very upsetting to me in a lot of ways And, like, you just can't help but, you know, hear in the back of your head the the send them back people or the America first people or the not in my Mm -hmm. backyard people. And that was just one of those things that really I think was was striking to the, the parallels to today that's in this novel. Also, just on the politics side of things, I wanted to highlight, I think, maybe my favorite, actually... I don't know if this is my favorite quote, but one of my favorite discussions that Picard and Clancy have where, like, Andy was referring to it, but he says, uh, 
then they must put aside their grievances, listen to the better angels of their nature, and make a sacrifice that is necessary for others to survive. It goes, nobody, said Clancy, wins elections telling people to make sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And um, that is horribly bleak. And it actually mirrors something that I was reading recently about how I think it was FDR in the fireside chats, like asked Americans to eat less beef so that they would have more meat, like less problems with rationing around the war effort. And so basically they were like, all Americans should not eat meat one day a week. And it was framed as this like thing we must all do for the good of the war effort. And not really since that time until very, very recently have we seen elected officials ever like make that case. And like, nor can we, we've kind of stopped being able to even imagine a world where it's like, yes, vote for me. And I will ask you all to consume less gas and turn the tide against climate change. And it's like almost like that's too too a bridge too far, guys. So it is I I did like that mention in the book because it it does speak to like maybe our culture is pretty messed up if we can't expect our politicians to be like leaders in a national effort for the good of all. Yeah, and this is what my biggest problem with this whole book is <laughs> and new Star Trek in general is that I don't want it to be realistic. This is so realistic. This is so <laughs> hyper realistic that I can see it happening. I can see these conversations. They're the same arguments politicians always make. I don't want Star Trek to be realistic. I want it to be aspirational. So yeah, she's a good character. She's well-written. Questus and Clancy, and they're both mm-hmm. they're both very good characters that did what they needed to do within the plot. They just depressed me. Yep. Should we talk about the Maddox and Gerardi situation, which was something we asked our listeners about? We should uh, just take that whole thing out of the book. It was so creepy. I hated everything <laughs> about it. I hated all of their scenes. She is really creepy to me. I don't get her deal. The other thing is, is y'all need to remember that I haven't seen the show yet. So I've only seen the, the the first episode of Picard. So to me, all I know about this character is this. And either she is the world's most cunning manipulator. She's real shady. Or she's a complete cliche. And either way, I don't like it. I don't like this relationship. It's super creepy. Well, I can say that pretty much all of our listeners who responded were also not a big fan of the relationship. Kara had a good comment. She said, I am really struggling with the Maddox-Gerati relationship and the characterization of Gerati herself. Why is the primary perspective through Maddox? It would have been better to see him through Gerati's eyes than the way we get it, which is the other way around. So she is just a sweet, worshipful student who puts the moves on him. And he's only considerate of her feelings when he hears her, quote, soft sounds and realizes she's crying more than once. You know, Kara has seen the series and says that um, she feels Alison Pell made Agnes Gerardi very rich, layered, and complex, and not a manic pixie dream girl. And she's very self-aware, but this person is not the one in the novels. They make a good point about how it's through Maddox's eyes, because he only sees her in conjunction to himself. She's there (laughs) to make him feel happy at all times, sexually, when it comes to his research. She's basically his his cheerleader. Tells him what a genius he is all the time. Yeah, it's so 
creepy. I just, I just like the way everything is about him. Nothing is about her. Like they make a he makes a couple of sides. He's like, oh yeah, she got her doctorate in robotics. Okay, bro. Like, but she's just following you around, telling you you're a genius all the time. Okay. So we don't know if he's like an unreliable narrator and she's not like that at all, but like that's the only version of her we see and she's a mess. Yeah, Sue, what were your thoughts on this? I think it's super gross. <laughs> so the the it's it's difficult, right? There's definitely this like professor student thing going on. The book does at least to me because it talks about her previous degrees imply that she's like older when when they meet and not like i don't know like a 22 year old grad student or even younger but he is definitely like gotta be what 50s if he was average age of the of the tng crew when we first met him right Mm -hmm. and the just the age difference is bothersome to me the power dynamic is not great And she just, like, sticks around and follows him around like this little puppy. And it, oh, I don't like it at all. I also think that, like, it almost does a disservice to Maddox. Which, like, I know he isn't supposed to be a villain in Next Gen. But, like, if you actually look at the character, he cares about this work. Right? He's trying to to learn. And that is his main goal, is, is finishing, figuring out how to create more Zoom type androids, right? But like, now they also make him like a lech. And it, it, it makes him gross and terrible in a new and different way. Yeah, like there's the line, Bruce Maddox had never really doubted himself or his great elusive dream. He never did. Yeah, it just, if anything, it actually probably negatively impacted my view of the relationship in the show because... It filled in that professor relationship, but then also because of the way she's just kind of presented as this puppy and he, like, we don't really see what her driving motivation is other than to praise him for his genius. And then you see in the show, like, her getting kind of lectured for it, Mm -hmm. like, for letting him go and all that kind of stuff. And I just did not. And then it was romanticized, Um, you know, like, please do not show me that hologram of them kissing anymore guys so yeah also not my favorite part of the book that said should we talk about which characters we liked in the book we talked a little bit about coley but we also asked about which characters from the show did this book make you see in a new light and we had many comments um saying that this book made people love raffi more me too i was not sure i was on board with her in the show to be honest with you and then the the book made me like her a lot more. Andy? Well, I mean, I haven't seen the show. <laughs> <laughs> but did you like her in the book? Oh, yeah. Raffi's great. I liked that she was a very smart, no-nonsense kind of person. I enjoyed that because you have Picard who's always... I don't want to say it's artifice because he's completely sincere, but he is always like this elegant creature. And then you've got Raffi just being like, fuck this. This Mm -hmm. sucks. And I really dug that dynamic between them. And I felt really sad for her that she lost everything. And Mm -hmm. for a mission that failed. 
And honestly, yeah. I feel like she came out of it worse than McCard did. Oh, she totally did. I, despite, you know, who, what you blame that on. But I thought it was an interesting mirroring of social structures in our time mm-hmm. that, you know, Picard goes into it up ahead on power, race and gender and comes out of it, you know, bruised ego, but he also got to make the decision and she didn't really have a say. Right. And she ends up a lot worse off than he does. But I do like that it doesn't challenge, you know, like the the way that it portrays her conflict about you know, taking this job or going back to my family. I like that it doesn't apologize for the decisions that she made and acknowledges that like, yeah, you know, she she made that choice and it's a valid choice and she suffered for it, but wouldn't necessarily have suffered the other way. Yeah, Picard takes a moral stand and mm-hmm. he makes that choice for himself, but he's also making it for Raffi. So because he wants to be up on his high horse, she loses her job. Yeah. And that is a pretty terrible situation. But I think what I found, I guess, off-putting about her at the start of the show was the familiarity with Picard, right? Because we didn't have a backstory. We didn't know where that came from. And I felt like the story in this novel explained it all perfectly. And I'm Mm -hmm. on board for it. And that, like, took any of that doubt or concern away from me. Yeah, our reader, our listener, reader, Zoe said, I love that Picard wanted to work with her because of how good she was at her job and because he wanted someone who would push him. One of my favorite traits in a leader is the desire to have people around you who push you rather than act as an echo chamber for your ideas. So agreed. Which is exactly what he was warned against. Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to talk about the crusher scenes? Uh, No, (laughs) it hurts me. I, I will say, like, I felt it hurt in a validating way a little bit. <laughs> uh, you're, you just want me to admit that I cried on the subway over a Star Trek book. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Um, it's hard to see that crew split up for me, mm-hmm. for any of the characters. I think, however, that in the descriptions of Picard leaving the Enterprise, that, that Una McCormick did them all justice. I'll put it that way. Yeah. It's nice to see that Worf, who thought like his career was over at one point during Deep Space Nine, become the captain of the flagship. It's nice to see Geordi, you know, join this project and, and take on really like the, the role of a lifetime in trying to create this rescue fleet. And in other ways, it's heartbreaking. Like, so for, for me, the goodbye with Crusher is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But, I also think frustratingly very much in character for those two. So Yeah. Yeah, I I think it accomplished a like, you know, I guess goal of transitioning with in a way that didn't undermine the character's previous connection. Mm-hmm. And I, I do appreciate I said it earlier in the episode that she's the one to tell him that he needs someone who will challenge him. Because for mm-hmm a lot of their time on the Enterprise, she was that person for him who's not going to let him get away with his crap, you know? And and he listens to it, and that's how we get Rafi. And I'm down for that. <laughs> yeah. Thoughts on the Coat Milat? I like that sword dude. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I still haven't seen him in the show show, but every picture I see of him, 
and he was adorable. And uh, like, I just love Sword Dude, the elf guy. I like him. Mm -hmm. Elnor. Yeah, I know his name, but he's Sword Dude and Elf Guy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, I really like the honesty thing because that could have been really um, cheesy. And also, Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times when people try and tackle this idea of like absolute candor or like honesty as like never lying, they have a tendency to show it as rigid and not a good thing. Like we need lying. And I really liked the portrayal of the idea that like, no, it could be really healthy if you do it right. And I loved the idea of like promises being a possible lie. I loved everything about that. That was great. And uh, sword ladies. I I mean, I love sword ladies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm also a fan of them and, and of Zanny acting as a uh, kind of mentor figure to Picard throughout this. I just love the idea of, so you have the Romulans and they keep getting set up as like this homogeneous culture. And then mm-hmm. They come and they show a section of Romulan culture that is the opposite of what everybody is taught to expect of Romulans. And then contrasting this order with the Tal Shiar was brilliant. Yeah, actually, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about how they portrayed the Romulans in different groups. So there's a couple things I want to raise. First of all, Suvim, who's like the sub-Praetor kind of diva character that they have on the ship. I I think it was a few chapters in where I was like, is he a good choice for the face of this crisis? And we do get some more different Romulans later, but it seems like it, you know, if he's the main person that you see them helping and he's just being like super demanding about his room all the time, that it is, I was like, maybe the person that was in like the middle to upper ruling class isn't like the best person to kind of explain this crisis to a reader but i don't know your thoughts and i think we do get a little bit more different later on well, i think it was actually great because it, he becomes like a metaphor for the entire romulan empire where is like his pride is keeping him from understanding reality and then also like he's complaining about these little things that mean nothing because he thinks that that's what's important is like the that's an indicator of his stature or status, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, he's humbled, which is exactly mm-hmm. what the Romulans go through. Like, the ambassador for the Romulans is a good example of that. And that by the end, she's like, you need help. Mm-hmm. And it's never, like, he was an asshole about it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And And then he had to come to terms with what was happening like he had to finally face the truth which is something the Romulans will not do through the whole book like they they go out of their way to hide the truth over and over and over again but eventually they can't anymore you cannot wish away a supernova you can't lie away a supernova you know it's happening and it's gonna happen so like that final moment where like all fight is gone from him and he has nothing and he just collapses is kind of indicative of the whole Romulan art. We have this Romulan culture that is so built on like secrecy and pride, or at least the one that we know from TV, right? Mm-hmm. And the the question that I keep hearing people ask 
is like, why do the Romulans care so little about saving their own people? And I think it's a wrong question, right? They won't admit to what's going on because of their own pride. You nailed it exactly, Andy. But long term, like, the truth is going to be evident. And if you don't get your your people out, you're not really going to have a people anymore. I don't understand the, the continued denial at home. If you want to continue to deny what's going on to the Federation, to to the, the other players in the, like, astro-political universe, fine. But, like, you're, you're letting your top scientist be vaporized because he's buying into the lies. Yeah, so I feel like this is another one where it runs right into the theme that she's like, this is how climate change is going to destroy us. Yeah. The politicization yeah. of science in general, mm-hmm. trying to hide the truth and pretend it's not happening for as long as humanly possible. That's not a rational thing. And yet that is exactly what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's like, obviously, most clearly represented in the character of Kurum, who's like the super wealthy dude who's preventing all the people in his town from leaving and has the shady house with all the fake entrances. That maze was amazing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And I loved it as a metaphor for the entire Romulan situation. It's overly complicated and it slows everything down and it just like is all about status and pride. And that's when I really started to like, I forget his name, the Romulan liaison that was like Picard's right hand guy in that scene. I started to really appreciate him because I feel like at the end, he really did start to see how dumb this shit is. Mm-hmm. And how much it hurts their society to have this be who they are. I did really like the dynamic with that Tal Shiar guy and the Kuat Malat. And I think they, you're right, they did a good job in introducing those different dynamics. There's also the people that really don't want to leave their town. There's like, there's all kinds of different dynamics. I think the area where it differs semi notably from some current refugee crisis, well, in a bit. Uh, so, like, one of the issues in this book is they have the state, the Romulan state is basically, like, actively trying to not participate in this process. And it is, when it comes to, like, putting them on certain worlds, wants them, like, actively on different worlds. And so that kind of, like, conflict, like, obviously, there's refugee crises where there's a conflict between states, the state that's resettling and the state that people are fleeing from. But it's like less analogous to this exact situation but it was definitely interesting i just thought she did a really good job mccormick did a really good job of making the romulans not just all the same Mm. i did really like the character of retet who is the romulan scientist who's corresponding with the earth scientist or trying to and that like it's very tragic how their work is kind of twisted against each other by their intelligence, the Latashiar folks. And but I I mean there was an also an obvious very depressing parallel at the end, you know, when he gets taken away to be tortured and that like they're using a very like they are there are four light style interrogation torture where they're trying to get him to accept that there were no errors in the data. Yeah, and I liked the way they contrasted how he was not able to do pure science. And Safadi was, but how even though she was 
in a more open society that allowed her to do her scientific research and publish it, that it still got politicized. Mm -hmm. It just Mm -hmm. was in a subtler way. And that she really wanted to be friends with this guy. Like, I just thought she was so sweet that she just, they spoke the same language and she wanted, she wanted to be able to work with him. And she thought she, he was so brilliant. And he even like shared that. I liked the scenes from his perspective because it was interesting to see how the propaganda had worked on him, but like he still admired her and respected her science and it, in a better world, they would have worked together and mm-hmm. solved problems together. I feel like that's a common thing we see in, in some fiction that, you know, despite politics or despite any any conflicts or wars that might be going on, that we have scientists that can come together for to, to work together to solve a problem. And... Unfortunately, it doesn't actually, their symposium idea doesn't work in this setup because one government is not willing to to see past their pretenses and their lies. Yeah. I think that, that some of the stuff that we are seeing with both the Federation and the Romulan Senate is that we've got governments making decisions out of fear. Mm-hmm. And I think that is... It's extending into to Star Trek Picard, the show, that like instead of thinking about compassion and saving as many lives as possible or helping as many people as possible, we've got fear reactions that are down the road causing larger problems. And we also have the, the Romulan government specifically controlling the messages of their media and saying that, you know, news from elsewhere is basically fake news and making sure that that they basically got state TV, right? That that their people are only hearing what they want them to hear. And it's it's a scary kind of controlling situation. Yeah, definitely. I feel like there are a couple of like slightly odd jokes and cultural references in the book that just caught me off guard at a couple points. And some I think work better than others. Like there's a point where when they're in the super wealthy guy's mansion and Rafi is making this joke about how like his wives must all be hidden in cupboards, like sort of a blue beard reference. And I thought like that was okay, but like a little odd. So there is a point earlier on where um, Rafi and John and Luke are talking about the like cartoonist that escaped and they talk about how there's an, a kind of underground railroad for dissidents. And I was just like, okay, well, maybe that is just like known as a term that means like escaping, helping escaping oppressed people. Mm. But I, I did a bit of searching and I didn't find that there's really an understanding of that as a really broader term outside the the Underground Railroad. So did maybe question that as a metaphor. But it was interesting. I didn't catch that. But I think you're you're right. Yeah, there's a couple. There's another one too where it uh, uses the phrase "gone native." Mm. That's a little bit like that one. I did notice. Yes, t- it depends on the context, uh, but um, in that case, it's talking about how Olivia Quest is being accused of being too like political and bourgeois and out of touch with her own world, and so that to me, like, it seemed like it was an implied 
criticism from the people on her planet and not intended in a flattering way. And so I would generally would have probably just stayed away from the term. But yeah, overall, maybe I'll I'll just finish with a depressing and hopeful quote in one. <laughs> quote, how does one help in an apocalypse? What does one do? One does one's best. Mm. So just gonna keep repeating that a lot. Yeah, unfortunately, I think what this novel is telling us is that Picard's best would never have been good enough because the mm-hmm. situation is just too dire. It's a lot of, of too little too late, but even if there had been a lot more, it would still be too late. It's out of his control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think you can take from this that you might fail and it's out of your control, but you should still do your best, which is what he did yeah. and what we should do. So we get at the, the very end, we to get us to the place where we find Picard at the beginning of the show, we have him quitting Starfleet because they are giving up on the Romulan ref- rescue effort. Mm-hmm. But isn't he also then just giving up? Because when he, he basically rage quits, right? <laughs> when he yeah. retires, he retires from everything. His, his mm-hmm. not only his work, but his relationships. He just writes cranky, passive aggressive, not right. <laughs> <laughs> but he 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 stops communicating with Rafi, apparently. He stops communicating with Elnor or Zani or or mm-hmm. anyone and just like goes and basically turns his vineyard into a hermitage, right? <laughs> yeah. To write his books. But is isn't he just doing exactly what the Federation just did? He didn't he get what he wanted. So he he pieced out. I think what happened is he lost faith in everything. He lost faith in in what he had been, like, his whole life had been working towards. Yeah, and I think that it's an understandable and human reaction in the situation, but it does bug me. I think that he does, that he is letting people down, and he, he certainly beats himself up over it in the beginning of the series as well. Like, I, you know, I've been basically just waiting around to die, and I haven't been trying to make things better, and... He does start to like go back to those people, but I think what bothers me is in the beginning of the series when he's kind of being like, "Well, I'm just gonna go pick these people up because I I couldn't like afford to lose my good friends, so let me pick some expendable people mm-hmm. up for this." And I I don't like I know that's not the intention. Well, it is, he literally says like my my old friends have too much to lose. I can't have them risk that. I need somebody with nothing yeah. to lose. That's like. Yes. Almost a direct yeah. quote. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, yeah, let me pick someone that can get killed without hurting too many other people. Like, it's it's very weird as a just like a statement of principles from a Jean-Luc Picard-like character. But I do understand, like, I think the situation makes me, makes it believable for me. Hmm. All right. I mean, we did ask one question, just asking whether people should, if they have not either read the book or watch the series which should they do first i would read the book first well you have i know (laughs) (laughs) but even even just seeing the first episode of picard like i'm really glad i read the book first yeah i definitely read it early on and i think that especially for for later episodes and i especially especially for raffi i think it provides some much needed background. I would agree. Yeah. Um, our listener, Lean, said that, um, on the other hand, that it 
was helpful to be to see what the characters you know look and act like on screen to have that to visualize when you're reading it and uh, she said it helped build my mental image of the world and especially when it comes to imagining mars or the daystrom institute so that is another fair take on it i think as i finish this series i find myself like mentioning the book to a lot of people i'm talking to but like oh but in the book it says this and so maybe that is a point for watching it simultaneously or first, but um, I would definitely recommend reading it. I think it, it's a really, really strong Star Trek novel, um, whether or not it's Star Trek, but it's <laughs> officially a Star Trek novel. No, it is Star Trek. I just wish it wasn't. Like, I, I'm not I'm not one of those people who's like, this isn't real Star Trek. It's just that Star Trek has taken a different direction than it used to have, and I miss the old way of doing things. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Without further ado, Sue, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? You can find me on the internet on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And Andy? You can find me on Twitter at First Time Trek. And I'm Jarrah, and you can find me on Twitter at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. 